Welcome to the Essential Southern Podcast, where we explore the rich history, culture, and traditions of the American South. Welcome back to the Essential Southern Podcast. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this podcast is sponsored by the Abbeville Institute. Go to abbevilleinstitute.org, A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org, to help us explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. We do exist on your generous contributions alone, so if you like this podcast, if you like our website, our conferences, all of our programs, our videos, please consider a tax-deductible donation to the Abbeville Institute. We do appreciate your generous support. Let's talk about this particular topic, and it would be an essay in a collection of essays from 1936 from a book entitled, Who Owns America? Now, the men who wrote in this book uh, were what were called the fugitive agrarians or the, uh, the Nashville agrarians. There were others in this 1936 book, but they came to fame in 1930 with the publication of a book entitled, I'll Take My Stand. Six years later, they follow up with Who Owns America in many ways, which is in many ways a better book. Now, one of the original authors is a man named Donald Davidson. Davidson was a poet. He was uh, someone who wrote excellent literature. He was, of course, in that Nashville fugitive agrarian group. And this particular essay is interesting because it is a political prescription for what's happening in America in 1936. Now, this is before the 1950s when people would say, well, all those Southerners are just worried about federalism in the 1950s because of the Brown v. Board of Education decision. We know federalism was very much a principle the South attached was attached to uh, for a long period of time, actually going all the way back to the 18th century. We know that Thomas Jefferson, James Madison articulated it very well in the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions, but even before that, you had Southerners committed to these principles. We know that Southerners were also interested in it. Long before 1832, Southerners had talked about it, even before the nullification controversy in South Carolina. But certainly the Jeffersonian position that was expanded upon most by Virginians was that we have a federation of states, that federalism is the key building block of the United States government, and that if we violate that, we're violating the Constitution. Now, the reason I want to talk about this essay and why it's essential is because Davidson in this particular essay does highlight what he calls new federalism. It is a search for regional government. And it shows you that this conflict between the center and the sections or the center and the states did not disappear after the war was over. And it wasn't about race in this particular case. They are worried about economics. They're looking at the entire system and saying, you know, we have antagonistic sections, we have antagonistic cultures, we have antagonistic economies, and we need to work out a way that we can have regionalism, we can have some type of control over our own well-being. Again, this is 1936. Now, Southerners have also been accused of being the thorn in the side of the Union, right? These are the ones that were the rabble-rousers, the people that were not interested in the real principles of the United States. Well, I would say it's the exact opposite. New Englanders were the first one that promoted secession, 1794. They pursued it again in 1801, 1803, 1805, 1815. They were talking about it during the 1840s. The abolitionists were anyways. So this is not something that's located simply within the South. And in fact, Southerners would point out someone like Daniel Webster who talked about nationalism was actually just a New England sectionalist. When it became 
vital for New England to pursue its own interests, they became nationalists because nationalism in a national quote-unquote economy worked well for them because it involved things that would make New England rich, like tariffs and banking and federally funded internal improvements, things the South didn't want. So the South was simply saying in this time period, well, we need a union that benefits all and burdens all equally, and these things don't do that. So that's why they're unconstitutional. We don't want banking. We don't want tariffs. We don't want internal improvements. We want things that are only constitutional. We can't find anything in the Constitution that allows us to, to create these things. But by the time you get to the post-war period, we have a new industrial economy. The Republican Party has foisted that entire system on the United States. And there are people now in the South and the West who are concerned about the direction of the United States. In particular, in this book, they're looking at corporations big businesses, and they're saying these things are crushing the small farmer, they're crushing the middle class, they're crushing the little guy. And it's time to start thinking about what we can do to have an economy that better reflects that. So again, this chapter is entitled That This Nation May Endure, The Need for Political Regionalism. Now notice what the title says. It's very Calhounian. Calhoun was interested in nullification because it would preserve the union. And all Davison is saying here is we need regionalism because that will preserve the union. It is a way to manage the nation, manage the union rather than secession. It's not leaving. It's trying to manage what we have and make it better. Southerners were always interested in that. In fact, nullification at its core is that. Nathaniel Macon of North Carolina, when there was a real push for nullification in 1832, He's part of the founding generation. He said, you know what? Nullification is kind of silly. If you really don't like the union, just get out. But nullification was always about preservation of the union. It was about going to marriage counseling rather than divorce. It was trying to figure out a way to manage this thing and make it better. So Davidson says this. When the older school of American historians had to record the actions of contiguous or, uh, groups of states that united to protect their common interests, they called the phenomenon sectionalism and stigmatized it as anti-national. The younger historians, and with them sociologists, political scientists, economists, and even men of letters, encountering the same phenomenon, name it regionalism, and hail it with geniality, or at least with resignation. To them it is not an anti-national force, but the condition itself of nationalism in a country as large and as notably diverse in its geographic divisions as our country is. Seemingly, they grant that the nation has already fulfilled a prophecy made nearly 20 years ago by Frederick Jackson Turner. If the reader will substitute the more fashionable region for the word section in the passage which follows, he will have a description of the sort of nation that students of regionalism now believe the United States to be. So notice what Davison has done here. He said, look, historians looking back in the past, so this is just a bunch of sectionalism. It's all dangerous. It's dangerous. And what he's saying is, well, recently we started talking about things as regionalism. In, in, us, in essence, in 1936, there were people that were recognizing that we have a diverse United States and perhaps maybe we can come up with a way to make it better. Maybe, just maybe, we can come up with a way to ensure that um, we can maintain this republic, this federal republic, by having regional governments by having a center that's limited in power, by having the regions and the states 
control things that the regions and the states should control. You know who else said that? Well, the founding generation. That's what the whole point of federalism was. This is Frederick Jackson Turner, quote, As the nation reaches a more stable equilibrium, a more settled state of society, with denser populations pressing upon the means of existence, with a population no longer migratory, the influence of the diverse physiographic provinces which make up the nation will become more marked. Physiographic, I should say. They will exercise sectionalizing influences, tending to mold society to their separate conditions in the spite of all the countervailing tendencies toward national uniformity. National action will be forced to recognize and adjust itself to these conflicting sectional interests. The more the nation is organized on the principle of direct majority rule and consolidation, the more sectional resistance is likely to manifest itself. Now, Frederick Jackson Turner was writing this in about 1915 or so. Donald Davidson is writing this in 1936. Could you not say the exact same thing today? This is why this is the Essential Southern Podcast. This is exactly what's happening now. Statesmen in the future, as in the past, will achieve their leadership by voicing the interests and ideas of the sections which have shaped these leaders. And they will exert their influence nationally by making combinations between sections and by accommodating their policy to the needs of such alliances. Congressional legislation will be shaped by compromises and combinations, which will in effect be treaties between rival sections, and the real federal aspect of our government will lie, and not in the relation of state and nation, but in the relation of section and nation. So Turner believed that these sectional entities will become more pronounced than states. Maybe. If you look at a map now, you can see it. Now, you could also say the United States is divided between, say, county and city, rural and urban more than anything else. But we certainly do have some of this. It's important to note that. The aptness of Turner's prophecy can now be seen by all but the dullest observers. I find that line to be hilarious. Because you know who doesn't see this? The left, the nationalists, the proposition nation mythologists, all these people, the Lincolnians. They're the dullest observers. The fact that we have this can now be seen by anybody that has a brain. The problem is you got people that just won't act on it. The diverse physiographic provinces with their separate regional cultures can be mapped with some def uh, definitiveness. In rough outline, with subregions granted as also having their importance, they are the Northeast, the South, or Southeast, the Middle West, the Southwest, the Far West. Population has grown denser. It presses upon the means of production, if not upon the means of existence. Economic specialization has encouraged marked regional interest. There is financial industrial, the financial industrial Northeast, a cotton, tobacco, and small farm Southeast, a wheat and corn Middle West, an oil and cotton Southwest, a fruit, truck, and lumber Far West. The newer regions in the maturity have developed a regional self-consciousness as marked in their older regions. Regional interests clash and are represented by warring statesmen, a Long, a Nye, a, La, a LaGuardia, a Norris, a Walsh. Above all, the policy of economic nationalism developed under the Roosevelt administration and likely to be continued if students of affairs argue correctly under succeeding administrations represents a determined effort to secure the stable equilibrium which Turner foretold is being achieved by a pressure of regional combinations, south and west, against a resisting and greatly apprehensive northeast. So this is right in the middle of the Great Depression. 
the Southerners who wrote and I'll take my stand, I mean, were pretty much pro Roosevelt. I mean, these people liked the New Deal in a lot of ways. Um, they weren't necessarily against it. But what they're saying is the South and the West are now creating kind of an antagonistic situation with the Northeast through this legislation. Again, 1936, you have to understand the reality on the ground. We've, we're in the, right in the middle of the Great Depression, and this is when this book is published and people are thinking about these things. Only the last clause of Turner's prophecy remains unfulfilled. Partly it may be because it touches a problem not only unsolved, but not understood, not even dimly visualized in some high quarters. There is no general readiness of our statesmen to acknowledge that true federalism consists in the relation of region or section and nation. We still insist upon the letter of the Constitution and hold that federalism lies in the relation of states and nation. Nothing indeed in Turner's remark could be taken as an advocacy of change. As a historian, he was concerned only to say what the real federal relation seemed to be. To grasp this reality by some political instrumentation would which would replace the, the fiction of the older federalism was not his task. Possibly he meant to leave only the implication that, that if no change should be made, the regional jockeying and compromising could, would go on indefinitely behind the federal screen. So, let me translate there. Davidson's saying, look, Turner's just a historian. He's just saying, look, this is what I see is happening. He doesn't come up with a prescription how to solve it. He's just coming up with something that might work. I mean, this is... How do we solve this problem? We have realities, and how do we make this work? To solve the problem, Davison is going to come up with something. To solve the problem of the new federalism must be the task of this generation. If we decline to face the problem, some turner of the future, arriving at the story of the 1930s, will pause in his lecture and say with emphasis, at this point, regional differences pass beyond the possibility of adjustment under the federal system, and here, therefore, began the dismemberment of the United States, long since foreshadowed in the struggle of the 1860s. But he might state a different result, now before us as a possibility. At this point, the ordinary processes of federal government failed to serve the national purposes. A dictatorship ensued. Ooh. So we have two ways in 1936. This is what Davison is pointing out. This is why this piece is so important. We have two ways. One... We can go with a new type of federalism, trying to deal with these regional differences, trying to deal with what's happening in America, and come to a resolution on this so that everyone can be happy. Or we can centralize to a point and create a dictatorship. Which path did we go down? He's saying years in the future. Here we are, nearly 70 years later. Eight, I'm sorry, 70. Nearly 90 years later, excuse me. Nearly 90 years later. 90 years We've almost gotten to a point where this book is in public domain. Nearly 90 years later, he's saying people would look back and say, we have this possibility. We can either do something now to handle the problems that were brought up in the 1860s, which were not resolved by the war, by the way, or we got a dictatorship. We got a strong central authority that created a real problem in America. Which one have we done? I think the answer is clear. We didn't create a new federalism. We didn't create a new regional system. We didn't do anything. We created a dictatorship. And that's what we have now in America. Now, not legally, but we have a soft one. And we looked at the federal government to do everything. In order to see what the problem is, it is necessary to recognize, first of all, that regional differentiations 
are social and economic fact, not a poetic fiction. I love that. These regional differences are a social and economic fact, not a poetic fiction. I cannot here elaborate the proof of the statement, but it is available. The skeptic who refuses the testimony of history, of sociological and economic findings, of studies in folklore or physiography, will do well to turn traveler and receive the testimony of eye and ear, or let him reflect upon the arrangement of a literary digest poll by regions, or listen to the campaign talk of those who tell how the West or the East will vote. The differentiations are the result of the occupation of a continental area by a vigorous people habituated to a high degree of independence and self-determination and shaped by diverse racial, social, political, and environmental influences. The history of the American establishment implies, if it does not enforce, diversity rather than uniformity. This is true. It enforces diversity rather than uniformity. In other words, Davison is saying we can't have a nation. This is going back to the John Taylor of Carolines, the St. George Tuckers, all these people in Virginia who said, you know, we can't have a nation. There's no such thing as a national government. It does not exist. It cannot exist. Abel Upshur. We cannot have one people because one people have never existed here. Look at the things we have. Racial, social, political, environmental influences. All those things. Diversity. The history of the American establishment implies but does not enforce diversity rather than uniformity. Lincolnian nationalism is arbitrary. It is fake. It is a fantasy. And if we try to continue down that path, we're going to get a disaster, a dictatorship. Now, that's really amazing These because people say, well, diversity is our strength. I mean, yes. If you have regionalism, if you have sectionalism, if you allow these things to actually happen, real diversity is manifested by federalism. That's important to understand. We've never had an American nation. It's never existed. We can take little pride in the American tradition unless we concede that it tolerates and encourages such diversity. But it makes no difference whether we deplore or welcome regional differentiations. They are here, and even the most determined of economic determinists know that they must be reckoned with. The diversity of regions rather enriches the national life than impoverishes it, and the, more ex the mere existence as regions cannot be said to constitute a problem. Rather, in their differences, they are a national advantage, offering not only the charm of variety, but the interplay of points of view that ought to give flexibility and wisdom. For the United States, the ideal condition would be this, that the region should be free to cultivate their own particular genius and define their happiness, along with their sustenance and security and the pursuits to which their people are best adapted. The several regions supplementing and aiding each other in national comity under a well-balanced economy. Well, that should be what we get, right? I mean, this should be what we want. We have all of these vibrant places working together, doing their best, and coming together for the common good at times, but letting each region be each region. But he says this has not happened. They have not been good neighbors. They have continually quarreled. Human nature being what it is, it might be beyond reason to expect otherwise. But the American political genius being what it has been, we might reasonably accept, expect that some provision should be made for preventing conflict or moderating it when it occurs. No such means has been provided. The federal constitution, for reasons obvious to us, to all who have studied it and know its history, 
not only does not make such provision, but it's by certain clauses prohibits regional combinations and in general thwarts regional expression. So we have a problem with the Constitution. The Constitution can't allow this, so we have to come up with something else. We have to figure these things out. In other words, these people were thinking about problems of the, of the modern era and how to address these things in a way that would produce stability. This is a very long chapter, and I only want to focus about 30 minutes on this, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. But he's setting up some arguments here. He's raising some questions about what America should be moving forward. He says, this, is, this no doubt deliberate exclusion of regions from all legal considerations has not in the long run resulted in a true federalism, nor has it prevented the interests of states. Instead, it has brought about regional imperialism. That is, it has encouraged the appropriation of federal authority by the region which has the means to lay hold upon it, and it has reduced the regions and within them the states to the position of complacent accomplices and servile dependents. Because we don't have real regional government, because we don't have a mechanism, we have central despotism. Controlled by one region, New England. We have New England government. This is why this essay is so important. There have been various attempts, some successful, some but partially successful, to use the federal power in this way. The Jacksonian West under Jackson, Van Buren, and Polk exercise a form of regional imperialism which the Northeast might well think about just now. Turner's posthumous book, The United States, 1830-1850, gives a detailed study of this imperialism. The long quarrel between North and South over the Western lands was a struggle of warring imperialisms, each eager to secure, always with due pretense of federal sanction, the benefits of colonial territory. Of the South, it might be said that its imperial designs did not contemplate imposing its peculiar institutions upon the sacred sod of Massachusetts, but the South feared with justice that Northern imperialism did most emphatically mean the substitution of a factory system for a plantation system in Virginia. Anticipating that event and fighting itself without recourse since it was outvoted under the federal system, the South strove for independence. So what he's just said there is that each side was really really imperialist. I mean, they both wanted to control the territories. That was the real issue. Who had power of the territories? Massachusetts won out. The South wasn't going to make Massachusetts the South, but Massachusetts was going to make the South Massachusetts. And so the South said, we're out. The South was defeated and was hauled back in the status of a subject province into the shell of the old Union. In that condition, though with the barren comfort of technical political rights for its states, the South has remained. For from the moment of Southern defeat, the regional imperialism of the Northeast began its effective reign. What a beautiful statement. We now have regional imperialism of the Northeast. So what Davison is saying here is we need to bring back the other sections need to have a voice in this government. We've had Lincolnian nationalism, or I should say New England sectionalism disguised as Lincolnian nationalism for a very long period of time. In the 60 years from Grant to Hoover, the United States have gone through the formality of 16 presidential elections. The elected candidates in the president's chair and in Congress are supposed to represent the people and to foster the general welfare. In practice, they represented the will of the Northeast and fostered the welfare of the Northeast. The Northeast has ruled with occasional concessions to its turbulent and increasingly doubtful ally, the West. 
For the agency of the federal mechanism, the Northeast has achieved its regional purposes, a high protective tariff, a gold standard, a treasury policy favorable to bankers and investors, a 14th Amendment ratified at the point of the bayonet to safeguard corporations, an open door to its foreign imperialism in the West Indies, Central America, and the Pacific, and above all, an unprotected area within the boundaries of the United States, the greatest free trade area in the world for its commercial domain. He just explained the Republican dominance of the United States, the Northeast dominance of the United States. It's exactly what it is. In these years, the Northeast has been the imperial capital region, and the other regions, including in the West, have been the colonial dependencies from which it bought cheap and to which it sold dear. Often enough, with something added over and above high tariff prices for interest on Northeastern money loaned to buy Northeastern goods. Grudgingly but wisely, the Northeast has yielded a point or two here and there, less to promote national interest than to soothe regional unrest. An interstate commerce commission, which, though helpful to the West, has been notoriously unfavorable to the South. A federal income tax, which Mr. Morgan in later years somehow did not have to pay. And a federal reserve system, which looked pretty bad to Northeastern eyes for a while. But in the main, the Northeast did not yield too much. The fruits of its unyielding domination are here, are there today for anybody to see. In its vast concentration of wealth and population, its splendid metropolitan centers, its universities, foundations, magazines, publishing houses, art galleries, museums, theaters, banks, harbors, its towering buildings envied by all the world, its sense of being well off, of being at the center, central strategic point. What, I mean, he has put the Northeast on blast on this. I mean, he, this is beautiful. This is why it's an essential Southern essay. There are other results of Northeastern imperialism. Although, since sinfulness has no regions, it does little good now to load American sins upon a regional scapegoat. Scope. The fact remains that the Northeast has been the chief agent and the chief sponsor of the large-scale industrialism which we are now put to so much trouble to manage. The Northeast has manipulated the federal mechanism so as to encourage, as a cardinal objective of national policy, a gross overemphasis on industrialism and speculative finance, with a corresponding injury and neglect of agriculture and small business, to say nothing of the general injury resulting to manners, morals, and human happiness in the Northeast as elsewhere. To be altogether fair, we should remember that some far-seeing Northeasterners have protested against this state of affairs, Regional dissenters, reflective and doubtful. Nevertheless, if any one region is more guilty than another of having brought about by deliberate policy the crisis of the 1930s, that region is the Northeast. Again, beautiful. This is why this book is better. Because he just outlines what's happened. 1860, we get from Grant, essentially the Grant administration, which we know was 1868, right? 1868 to Hoover. 1868 to 1929. We had very few Democrats in office in that time period. And uh, the Republican Party, and look, even if you say Wilson, well, as a Democrat, Wilson was, by that point, acting like a Northeaster. The only one who may not have done that is Grover Cleveland. But even here, Southern, he's a New Yorker. So you once you get Grant, I mean, you think about it. Where did the South have a voice in the executive office? I mean, Wilson was the only Southerner in the bunch. And he was living in New Jersey, president of Princeton. 
He wasn't nominally a Southerner at that point. At least the outlying regions of the West and the South are inclined to draw the indictment thus. The West has a feeling of having been played for a sucker. It now begins to see what the South has long known, that under present arrangements, a national policy that means wealth for the Northeast may well mean poverty for the sister regions. Northeastern imperialism somehow draws all to itself, and the crumbs from Div's table are no longer the surplusage, but only the crumbs of a theoretically national feast. The old outcry against Wall Street is an outcry against a regional foe symbolized by a single institution. It means that the towers of New York are built upon southern and western backs. This is just simply a populist refrain, right? This is what populists were saying in the 1890s and the early early 1900s. I mean, this is what they were saying, right? This is this is the populist argument against it. But it goes back before that. This is John Taylor of Carolina in 1814. It's what they were sounding the alarm bells about all the time there. Does the Northeast exclaim to honor at the spectacle of the southern of southern lands eroded and worn out, at the devilish one-crop system and the tenant system, at the burnt and cut-over mountain slopes, the illiterate and diseased populations, the fierce despair, the terrifying apathy of large districts, rural and urban? Let him never think that these sins against good order were willfully committed or arose from human sloth and malignity alone. The ravaged lands of the South are rather a mute testimony, indeed a fearful accusation, against a distant tyranny of money, money which the South did not have and was forced to try to gain. The Southern planter or farmer, and not only the Southern one, gullied and exhausted his land, sold his timber, held his tenants pinned with a dollar mark, not because he was a limb of Satan, but because money had, had to be forthcoming, and that quickly for shoes and hats from tariff-protected factories, money for farm machinery, kerosene, gasoline, fertilizer, cooking stoves, knives, axes, automobiles, all financed and produced under the imperial scheme, money for mortgages and loans to placate the sucking tentacle tip of the money octopus flung far to seize him, money for taxes to run schools on the new model furnished by the Northeast, and yes, indirectly to swell the endowment of Teachers College of Columbia University, and keep its well-marshaled hosts employed. Money for more taxes for still more public improvements, new roads, new courthouses with steel filing cabinets, and new bureaus upon bureaus. Money for interest on the national debt covered by bonds, gilt-edged, good as gold, offering Hamiltonian conveniences to banks and security vendors. Money for the new Northeastern idea of insurance to hedge him against the liabilities and calamities forced upon him by the system and to bury him with lifeless, moneyless, and propertyless, he should deliver his soul to his maker and his body to a mortician who is one of the most highly valued members of the Chamber of Commerce. For all the while, prodigious and faithful though his labor might have been, the money for these things came to him in a niggardly trickle, if, if at all, but it poured northeast in flood. The South has learned this lesson well, and now the West may learn it too, may know that the West goes and overalls that the North East may walk in silk and satin. Look, I mean, the South has been played upon. The West has been played upon. I mean, this is a, a real indictment of the Northeast. We've been sucked dry. The United States has been sucked dry by this money 
this money system, this Hamiltonian system, we get nothing of it, yet the North gets extremely wealthy. Now, uh, again, I could keep going with this, but I, I want to keep these podcasts to around 30 minutes. This is just a preview. The chapter goes on for another 10 or 15 pages. And the same kind of tenor. It's excellent. And he's explaining why we need to have regionalism, that the Northeast has become imperialist, that we have to strike at the heart of Northeastern imperialism. That's why it's an essential Southern podcast. People were still talking about these things in the 1930s, and it had nothing to do with the issues that everyone will tell you that had to do with it. Race. It's all about race. No, they're saying this is about economics. This is about culture. It's being destroyed. Southerners are wearing overalls while Northerners are wearing silk. Well, what's happening here? What's wrong with this system? This is why we need regional government. This is why we need some other kind of system, or we're just going to get dictatorship. It's a beautiful essay, and Davidson had a great collection of poems. If you haven't ever read it, Lee in the Mountains, it's fantastic. But that is Davidson, the literary figure. This is Davidson, the polemicist, which is really good, too, and why I had to talk about it on this episode. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Essential Southern Podcast. Until next time, good day.